KHENLP 106.9 Salida. This is Truth Quest, and uh, also state that the views expressed on this program are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of KHAN staff, volunteers, or board of directors. And my co host tonight is Eric Carlstrom, and, and my ge- our guest tonight is Alan Watt. Okay. <laughs> Alan? I'm here. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, uh, it's fascinating to go back, and and what we're starting to see then uh, is a long-term plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're talking about Babylon uh, thousands of years ago, uh, which would be, which would then have somehow persisted through through history, uh, but but changed, I suppose, from region to region, or the center of power of this plan would have changed uh, from region to region. Is is that right? Yeah. I mean, technically, wherever Babylon went became New Babylon. It wasn't just one place, although it was a place at one time as well. It was a system. And they often, when they created a new empire, they'd always bring the lion with them. At the gates of Babylon, they always had the lions over the gates. The same in London. Uh, you'll see it on coats of arms of many royal families down through the ages and uh, sometimes dragons you know the same old symbols over and over (coughs) which have nothing to do with reptilian people but uh, um, as I say the the, the first religion Nimrod or the early religion of Nimrod uh, was a form of of uh, worshipping a rebel the one who was flung from heaven and who stood up to the gods or the Demi-Urgos god see the god of the world in ancient times and even in the esoteric today the god of the world is Satan or Lucifer they're really two different entities um, and it's, it's got many allegories like Prometheus too uh, stole fire from the gods and brought it meaning intelligence and brought it to earth to mankind so in, in the, the occult traditions of ancient times uh, Prometheus was a savior. Um, the same with Nimrod, uh, a massive, powerful warrior, incredibly intelligent, but also a rebel against the, the supposed creator of the system, who was a bad guy, um, who, who had, was, had rules and regulations and, and gave you a life of misery. So it depends on whose side you take it from. But you have a, when you're completely neutral and you see from, from what it is, you understand how the religions were formed in the first place and when when he was killed supposedly in this war of the gods uh, and Nimrod died um, his wife then and this is traditional in religion is then elevated above him and she becomes a virgin again and she became a virgin the queen of heaven and then the son uh, was also made a god but you always got to the sun through the virgin and this is repeated down and down and down through history even through the Greek religions as well um, you always pre- got to the, the father God through the, the mother uh, as tradition so re- religions were always used as a tremendously effective way of controlling mind control of, of whole nations and that's why if you write, read the writings of um, Aristotle, for instance, he goes through in some of his writings the system 
of government, beginning with the, the noble or royal families at the top, nobility, and and then all the all the the, the military but also that a lot of the money had to be spent on the priesthoods because they were so effective in controlling the populace by by basically giving them what seemed to be the reality. So it was about control then, as it is... Oh, yes. Yeah. It's always been about control, always, yeah. So basically the ruling elite then as now prefer a feudalistic society where you have uh, a few of those, a few of them who are... Somehow they consider superior to everybody else, and then you have the the human herd of uh, of unwashed masses who are considered like cattle and like uh, domestic human beings, perhaps like slaves. That that would be a fair assumption. That that's how it, it's always really, in a sense, been. Um, we can go into again the writings of Zygmunt Brzezinski. And uh, he explained the upcoming system, the technotronic era. And he, he, he talked about, he's called the world, uh, Between Two Ages is the name of the book, Between Two Ages, but the chapter is called the technotronic era. When he says the new system will be run by those at the top, plus the technocratic class, he's talking about a technocrat, as people, are people like himself, Brzezinski, uh, the Kissinger types, the Maurice Strong types, the ones who have real power. And if you go into the writings of Professor Carol Quigley, who was a historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, uh, right from the horse's mouth in his own book, Tragedy and Hope, and his other fantastic book called The Anglo-American Establishment, that goes through the hidden histories of the British and American empires and their goal. Uh, Quigley himself uh, said the new system that's coming up that we brought in will be uh, a, a new feudal system, a new feudal system uh, with uh, the CEOs of corporations, international corporations being the new feudal overlords. So that's already happened. I've been uh, reading that there's a big new Brzezinski has a, a direct tie-in with uh, the candidacy of um, Barack Obama. It's very possible, but personally, I don't think it even matters. I think all, all politics, this is my opinion, is a show for the public. Right, right. Because I traveled so extensively uh, across the world, and I'd see the same laws being passed in every country I'd, I'd go through about the same time. And it was always treated as it was a national thing. And, of course, the, you didn't know that your neighbor and country was doing the same law at the same time. And I realized there was already a world system set up. Okay, and so, go ahead. Yeah, Alan, would you, you know, I read books like uh, by Tom Hartman, um, Unequal um, Protection, The Rise of Corporate Dominance, and The Theft of Human Rights. And and he seems to make the case that uh, democracy has happened to just a few places for a short time in human history, and he starts with Greece, and then he talks about the great experiment in America. And he says it's very fragile, and it is the exception, and, and that feudalism is the, is the rule. <coughs> How much of an exception would you say uh, we have actually had or been in, the, uh, in, the, in, in this great, uh, quote-unquote, American experiment? Or would you say it's just kind of been a, a, a variation in, the, in this old theme? It's been a variation, but I, I have to say, uh, the, the, to say that the United States, in every major job, is to be had 
of any import whatsoever in government or even local government you only find they're all Freemasons that's the religion that's always run the United States of America and if you go into the writings of, the, of many of the big players in Freemasonry right from their own books like Albert Pike uh, you'll find that he talked about the end the, the need to end property it was a major one enemy for peace private property um, uh, a new a new um, way of having families in other words male and female different relationships um, if you compare everything that Pike talked about to the communist manifesto you'll find they're pretty well identical well it seems strange that they would build up the uh, middle class and then turn around and tear it back down but it, no it's, it's perfectly in line with what they do when they sent over settlers into the United States and they used it was called the Americas really before the revolution um, they were at war with the French the French were trying to, to hold on to it and um, everyone fought against the French and all, si- and all there was no borders at the time and I've got books going back to the 1700s and it's incredible the Masonic influence that was even avail- around at that time but eventually they can allow you to take over land and then you get the big drives there to, to, to settle land and races even to who first come first served if you were on that plot first and drove the stake in they knew darn well remember that you could make that uh, you'd clear all the, all the scrub you'd clear all the land you'd make it into real estate something productive economically but they also knew that one or two or three generations down the road they could take it back from you just as easily so in other words it's kind of like they do with small businesses they let them do the uh, research and development and then come in when the, it's a successful yeah. you know. long term so we think so short term that we that that's why they get away with it at the top we think what we can do in 5, 10 or even 20 years is a stretch uh, these characters literally through institutions and again this was explained by Carl Quigley and others when an institution is, is formed it's given its tenets of operation, it's an objective its own manifesto it can hire and work and retire and recruit and, re- and work and retire generations of men all working intergenerationally towards the same agenda and that's how the British governmental system truly has always worked the higher levels of government it's, an, it's, it's long-term planning, long-term projects, like a, a chess game. You sit for a long time staring at those pieces. Everyone else is so impatient. And, uh, and you know that whatever you allow people to have, you can take away tomorrow. And I read that the British government is extraordinarily infiltrated by Freemasonry. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the British government, uh, you have to be in Freemasonry to be in the government. And you have to be in Freemasonry to be a member of any of the special branches, uh, um, the MI6, MI5. Peter Wright again wrote about that in his own book, and he belonged to the organization. He said it was mandatory. You were saying in one of your uh, blurbs uh, it, that struck me when you were talking about the different um, uh, degrees in in Masonry, I was hoping I was understanding that correctly. It's almost like it's an intergenerational thing. So if you had two or three generations, they can kind of work higher up in the degrees. Okay. Well, within, again, even the ancient mysteries and right through masonry, too, uh, 
some more so than some types of sects, like the, the, the true Rosicrucians, not the ones you send off for the literature from, um, they will teach children to be brought up it was specific ways of looking at the world, Masonic values. But if you're a first-generation Freemason, you can only go up to, to the limit that's accepted in either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite. Um, but if, if, you are, if, if you have certain qualities and good standing, meaning you have import, maybe some financing within the community, uh, you will be introduced to a woman who has been brought up uh, as a daughter of Eastern Star and trained and, and you'll get married to her if you listen to, to the suggestions. And your offspring then will be brought up as Freemasons. He'll go higher, but it's really the third generation who can go much, much higher above all of the degrees that the general population know about. It's the third ge- So it's a eugenics program. Well, is there uh, a uh, Catholic equivalent of that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was banned at one time when they caught on to what it was initially started off uh, as uh, the Knights of Columbus, for instance, started off as supposedly a, a, an organization to fight Freemasonry. That's what the Pope thought it was. And when they found out it was using the same rights and all the rest of it as Freemasonry, it was banned for a while, and, and now it's all legal again, as, as far as I understand. So it's within every organization and has been for a long time. Um, you'll find it in Hinduism, you'll find it in all other organ, uh, even Buddhism. It is, is the right? religion of the world. Yeah. Uh, the religion of the world is what, what now? Uh, Freemasonry? It manifests itself, it manifests itself uh, under Freemasonry. And, and you were saying something about, uh, going back just a little bit, there's a heavy British influence also in like China and, and the eastern areas. Um, so do they have that kind of control over there? Well, the western world set up China. Okay. If we go into the histories of China uh, before World War II, uh, outside of the major cities, I mean, remember too that the Britain... The United States, France, and a few other countries had basically drugged China into submission. With the opium wars? With the old uh, queen. And uh, they, they brought in thousands of bales of opium, mainly from Britain, the British system, because they already ruled Afghanistan and the Golden Triangle at that time, so there were lots of opium in India as well. And, and they brought that in, and they dumped it... Um, and the whole idea, they sat back for a few years, kept doing it and kept doing it, waited till enough people were, were hooked on opium, and it was degenerating the system from within. And then they came to terms with the, the old uh, uh, the queen, uh, that if they were given special permission to have an American base, American sector, British sector, French, etc., um, and trade with them, they were forcing them into trade, uh, then they, they would stop supplying the opium. And so they, they used drugs, even at that stage, in a warfare project. They're still using it, by the way, over in Iraq. People don't realize that American planes were dropping opium, uh, blocks of opium, uh, at the beginning of the Iraqi war. Hmm, and footage of it. So, so this, this is, these guys have always used the dirty tricks, and any, nothing is dirty enough to use. They'll use anything to get their way. 
And then after, of course, we, we know that, for instance, communism again was set up well, like, like the usual it, the way it is. Um, and so you end up with the Hegelian dialectic, two sides battle it out and then come to a compromise. And the whole purpose was to change the whole society during the conflict. That's what they do. Bertrand Russell, again, Lord Bertrand Russell, related to the royal family, very closely related, in his own memoirs said that he was set, sent off to China in the 1930s to teach at universi uh, universities the basic principles of communism long before the revolution. I understand that Maurice Strong's over there in China now. An interesting thing happened with Maurice Strong because on a rainy Sunday afternoon a couple of years ago, I turned on my little TV with the rabbit ears. I get three stations. And one is the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. You might find this in the cbcarchives.org.ca. Um, it was about Maurice Strong. And here's the guy in his 70s putting in 12 hours a day at the office in China. And he'd just been pulled out of Canada. They'd brought him to Canada for a while to privatize the electricity system in Ontario. And then they put him back to the World Bank, then over to China in a brand new building to work on international trade for their trade, for their ties with the West. But during it, he went to a graveyard in, in outside Beijing and um, he put graves, he put flowers on a grave of, of his aunt. His aunt in the gravestone said was a great friend and advisor to Mao Zedong, the revolutionist. So these families have always been involved in worldwide revolution. Yeah, I'd, I'd read about her, but I didn't really. I just recently read he had sons. I didn't. I wasn't aware he even had a son. Mm -hmm. And and so he's kind of involved in the uranium. Yes. Okay. Well, Maurice Strong also owned the the Baca Grande ranch. Uh, on top of the largest underground underground aquifer or water. Uh, supply in the United States. Yeah. Well, I have to. I have to uh, let you know, uh, Alan, that uh, I am uh, in a group called Water Watch Alliance, and yeah. I live in Crestone, which is right next to uh, the the Baca National Wildlife Refuge, which used to be the Baca Ranch, and uh, a Canadian corporation, Lexam Explorations Incorporated, out of Toronto, is trying wants to uh, drill three fourteen thousand foot gas test wells oil or gas, but I think gas, right on the wetlands of the new Baca uh, Wildlife Refuge. Now, Maurice Strong, when he owned the ranch, was the guy that severed the mineral rights from the surface rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, then he sold the ranch back in, well, uh, while he owned the ranch, he tried to take the water, as you know, out of, out of this uh, aquifer, which is a huge uh, confined aquifer with maybe 140 plus million acre feet of water. And yeah. if you were to sell it at the going rate over to the Denver area, which he wanted to do, it would be worth hundreds of billions and maybe even trillions of dollars. Um, so now the, the, what we're trying to fend off, if successfully the, the, the local ranchers and environmentalists did keep Marie Strong from, from taking the water, but he did sever the mineral rights, and, and then when he sold the ranch, a local guy named Gary Boyce tried to take the water. Uh, again, locals fought off that attempt. So the water sits there now as mostly property of the state of Colorado, mm -hmm. uh, but the, the play now is to try to get these 14,000-foot exploratory wells down there for gas. 
and I've uh, I've been working on this, and I find it amazing that Marie Strong is not only the guy who tried to take the water and who severed the mineral rights, he's also the guy who, when he was in the United Nations, authored Agenda 21, mm-hmm. and uh, wearing his environmental hat, uh, trying to basically take public land away from American people. That's right. Uh, this this is an extraordinary man. Mm-hmm. Oh, extraordinarily he, he, powerful. This is the thing, you see, Professor Carl Quigley explained um, what a technocrat was as well as, as Brzezinski, and Quigley said that there are those who face the public, who are the politicians, they take the heat for what happens, he says, but they take the acclaim, they, they get bowed to and all the rest of it, and their egos are pampered. He said, but those with the real power work behind the scenes, they're called technocrats, they move internationally. Uh, they have more power than any politician or elected leader. And he says they make the powerful decisions, the the real decisions, uh, unhampered by any comeback from the public because they're not answerable to the public. And Maurice Strong is one of those guys. Is he kind of like a front man with the Rockefellers? Yeah, it was Rockefeller who Mm. picked him up. Uh, David Rockefeller picked him up and groomed him for his position and uh, he's a he's an elitist of course uh, in his thinking he believes in superior types and inferior types he he uh, his wife Hannah Strong is the same and uh, and they, they truly believe that uh, at least he does and his wife Hannah uh, that they have their their masters they came back to this earth to guide humanity through many reincarnations Etc. Etc. And I don't know if they still have it down at the back of ranch there, but they had all of the different gurus and swamis and New Agers. They even had Carmelite nuns there who were very New Agey, um, all down at that ranch there, living there. And Maurice yeah. and his wife would go there and meditate. They even built the the round tower that you walk up by degrees, uh, styled after the one in Iraq, uh, and uh, that was really. It's been here, is that right? Yeah, it's your spiral. It's your, it's your That's the cigarette. Yeah, and and the rock industry, the occult industry of the OTO, which most of the musicians go into, uh, they call that helter skelter. That's the helter skelter that you go up the spiral staircase, the stairway to heaven. Uh huh. Well, yes. Well, since I live here, I'm I'm quite familiar with uh, Hannah Strong's uh, role here. She she. Uh, has this nonprofit organization called the Manitou Foundation, and sh- and she has given parcels of land that were part of the original Baca Ranch to uh, many, many, many spiritual communities. They're beautiful parcels of land. So we have over 20 different major spiritual communities here, uh, representing many religions. And so she is, uh, she's considered, uh, 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 you know, she's uh, an honored uh, uh, leader. Uh, community leader because she has uh, uh, influenced the direction of our community. Yes. Um, interestingly enough, there's been a move recently to close access to uh, trailheads to go into public land uh, because those trailheads are on her land or land that she has deeded over to different spiritual communities. And uh-huh. some of us who like to hike and climb are trying to say, well, hey, we've had historical access to those public lands uh, through these trailheads for, uh, you know, 
a hundred years, so why are you closing them now? <laughs> mm-hmm. It makes us nervous that uh, uh, there would be uh, uh, less access to public lands. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So all of these, all these issues are are very much uh, coming uh, coming to a head right now, uh, uh, right here. It's fascinating, fascinating place to be, and still quite uh, beautiful, quite spectacular. Yes. But uh, I guess I digress. Uh, um, but yeah, Marie Strong would be an example, as you say, of a technocrat uh, who moves internationally and has more power than uh, just about any politicians we could think of. Well, they brought him back, as I say, from the United Nations uh, to Ontario to be the, the CEO of the Ontario Hydro Corporation, which was really owned by the public. They built it up. We paid for everything through our taxes. That's nuclear everything here. And um, he was brought in while he was still working with the United Nations. That, came, that broke out in the newspapers, and so he, he retained his job for $1 per year because he was getting two salaries, one from the UN and one from the Canadian public. And uh, he started the process for, for privatization of everything the public had paid for to their own bodies. And now it's all privatized, and the altruist has gone through the roof. But this is in the 1990s, the mid-90s. He also set up the process to bring in massive diesel generators to power the few factories left uh, the big institutions and so on, big buildings, for coming power outages that were going to come down the road when they started to cull or cut back on energy supply to the public. This is before Kyoto was signed or the talk of eventual rolling brownouts and all this kind of stuff. These guys planned way ahead, and we only see uh, the symptoms appearing as, as, they, as they hit us directly. Uh, and we don't realize that everything is planned that way. Anything that happens was planned long ago. I was very intrigued with your comment that they believe that they are masters who have reincarnated masters who have come back to earth to guide uh, kind of lesser beings. Uh, where do you, where, where have you uh, learned that? How do you know that? Uh, how do you, how do you infer that? You'll find it from the books put out uh, by the higher masons. Uh, often it's innuendo, it's allegory, and so on, but sometimes it's straightforward enough too. And Manly P. Hall was one of them, for instance, and he wrote about the hidden masters. Um, you'll find it with, the, with the, the branch they set up primarily for females to get the females into the lodges, and that was Theosophy. Uh, that was eventually given a Masonic charter. And um, Theosophy, again, was okayed by the British uh, Crown. And uh, Madame Blavatsky talked about the hidden masters as well, and now on one one side the hidden masters are those spirits still hovering around that haven't come back that sort of channel to these special people but on the other hand too there are ones that they claim have come back into the flesh to guide humanity to their final goal uh, the Rockefeller family are firm believers in this as well and the Rockefeller family by the way also have been given out awards uh, as citizens of the world uh, for years now I've, I've got a video here where he's handing them out to pretty well all the mayors in New York and just about everybody else of importance. And citizen of the world comes from a, a, a saying supposedly given by Socrates when he was condemned to drink the hemlock 
for corrupting the youth for towards revolution um, in ancient Greece. He said, I'm not an Athenian, I die not as an Athenian uh, or a member of Attica, which is Greece, but he says, I, I die as a citizen of the world. The goal was always to create a world empire and a world government. Uh, another thing that I was listening to on one of your blurbs that I found kind of interesting is is how they controlled and 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 got payment from the uh, the poor or whatever the the regular people for you know breathing or um, you know in the past and now that they've kind of trans translated it somewhat into the present are you following what I'm saying here the permission for support for what? Well, I mean, like they had smaller windows and... Oh, yeah. Okay, and and things, and now that it's kind of being um, molded into now being uh, our CO2 footprint. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. well, again, you see, we're, we are carbon-based life forms, and the big cry now is their big joke, you know, that you've got to cut back on carbon and CO2. Well, we breathe out CO2 emissions. We are the main culprits, you see according to them and they will bring up it's already happening they're, they're brainwashing children as kindergarten to grow up as a first generation who will truly believe everything they're told and how they must not breed in fact they'll, they'll volunteer to be sterilized and probably get little uh, special pluses from government and so on for doing so little favors um, to save mother earth and they have already stated in many different publications their ideal population number for the world in a post-industrial era, a post-technological era even. Uh, they simply don't want 90-odd percent of the public. They don't need them anymore. And you've got to understand that they're talking from an elitist, feudal point of view. They've never been democratic at the top, never, ever. I mean, they even speak of environmentalism back in the eighteen um, hundreds know, and that sort. Yes. Uh, did they view it the same, or did they have another interpretation of that? It's their world. That's how they see it. It's their world. It's their resources. The only humans, uh, actually, they call themselves man. We we are not really uh, the same. They cut two species, in other words. Uh, those who are perfected and those who are common. That's why you're called in, in the empires, they're called commoners and subjects. So those who have bred into families that have proven their worth by accumulating great wealth and intellect and so on and power and held onto it for many generations are the true masters of the world, according to them. And they have always, from the earliest days, look at, look at the history even in ancient Egypt, uh, pharaohs would marry their sisters often, uh, because they believed they had superior genes. We have the same thing with Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin and many others were, were following the same policy in his era. Uh, his family only married with the Wedgwood family, the, the famous pottery family. And um, his, his grandfather married a Wedgwood, his father married a Wedgwood, Charles married a Wedgwood, and when his wife died, he married his mother's sister, another Wedgwood. These are breeding yeah, programs, on. eugenics. Yeah. Well, you know, the uh, I, I, I guess this is this chauvinistic attitude that you know we're better than everybody else. This this also plays out 
as I understand it, that the Jews have a term for non-Jews or Gentiles, which is goyim, meaning mm-hmm. human cattle, and yeah. that uh, they would tend to look at non-Jews as as far inferior creatures. Yeah. And the, the problem is, even all all religions will tend to do that. There's no doubt, and uh, Judaism has been enforced again by rabbis uh, until it's become almost a phobia in some places. There was articles in the Toronto Sun uh, from a Jewish uh, reporter condemning them in parts of Toronto because he heard them talking in Yiddish and their comments they were making about the guy and so on. And so there's no doubt that, 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 that see most most religions are racist uh, and they're very based because every religion tells you you're special, and you even have charismatic Christians acting the same way. And then if we look at what what we do when we go into other countries and conquer them, take take Britain for instance. I mean they used to hunt not until fairly you know fairly recent times they used to hunt the Aborigines down for sport because they believed they were subhuman. So. Uh, every every people is guilty of the same thing if you start to believe in your propaganda that's given to you as a culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to think that we're all not uh, so guilty of that, but I suppose that, that there can be an element within each religion which can be propagandized and convinced that they're, that they're superior. Yeah, I mean, the British Empire used, heavily used Christianity uh, and the British-Israel myth that they were the lost tribes. They used that for propaganda, and that's published and admitted now. Uh, and many people went off abroad and all thinking they were fighting some good fight. To Same excuse that ancient Rome used to, to, to civilize the barbarians. Well, Britain used the same thing. And, of course, as they were looting Africa and India and other countries... Uh, they, were, they were saying we're over there um, civilizing and bringing Christianity to the people. Yeah. So I use the term British Association, British Israel Association, British Israel Foundation, and British Israel Myth. Could you explain exactly what you mean by that? Well, as I say, the, 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 it started off with a, a, a man in the, in the, um, the, the mid part of the 1800s in England. Who he was schizophrenic, but he suddenly came to the conclusion that he was the true king of England, and he wrote to the monarchy, and with all this amazing stuff that he'd he'd put together on why he was the king of England, and and he was of of he was the first one to come out with these are the twelve tribes were all part of the twelve tribes, and it, and he was locked up in an insane asylum eventually. However, the British government said they could they thought we could use this. We could use this technique for propaganda purposes, and because they had to get the, the, the Christian societies on board with all their wars of conquest across across the world for the empire, and and sure enough, uh, you always found along with the soldiers came the missionaries, and lots of Bibles, and uh, and that was a way to pacify the public as they were taking their land over. Again, long-term projects, maybe lasting two, three generations but it was an old technique so they used British Israel but it initially was started up by a guy who, who was um, uh, schizophrenic okay when you say the term British Israel then what you mean is that the notion that the people of Britain are one of the lost tribes of Israel 
right? one or more, and they go into this this stuff to do with with uh, Dan, for instance. Dan, you see, personally, I don't think there were tribes of Israel. Um, it's all to do with the zodiac. In fact, you've, I've written about it in my books. Every blessing given to every tribe of Israel is actually a symbol of the zodiac. And um, however. Uh, in the British Israel Society they tried to connect things together and say well when part of the tribes uh, came out of Egypt some went here some went by sea some went by land and they came up with different what they think is proofs of it very tenuous proofs and uh, they'll, they'll say well Denmark is really Danmark you see the tribe of Dan and this is how they associate things by they don't realize that, that um uh, not so long ago, these these, con- these countries were not always called Denmark <laughs> or Scotland or, or England, for that matter. You know. Right. Well, the, the would there actually be a foundation or an association that calls itself British Israel? Oh, there is. Yeah, and uh, it is uh, again tied in with uh, British royalty. It's given a charter to exist, but it's also the World Federalist Society. It's one and the same group. The two organizations are one. So its purpose is to bring uh, a system of world government into being. That's its main thrust. Yeah. And is, is Agenda 21 part of that? Uh, Agenda 21 is just another arm of the same thing. They're looking at Agenda 21 is the agenda for the 21st century, according to the UN, which is a front organization. Again, it's a non-democratic organization. Uh, that's always talking about democracy but it doesn't practice it because it's, it's unelected by the citizens of the world and uh, they have the whole next century mapped out to do with the cultural changes the creation of a new world culture all your laws that you get put on your books uh, across the world come from the UN all your building codes come from the, the UN plumbing, electricity, everything comes from the United Nations they are already a world government and, you don't, yeah, and it's been there for a while and if you read all the, the books written at the time of the signing of, at California of the final document of, for the, 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 the official startup of the United Nations, uh, they tell you right there that this is the end of nationalism for any country. And, and this was signed when? It, it was set up to be a, a global government system. And that was, is that the one that was signed, was it 1947? At 46, I think it was just after okay. World War II. Yeah. Okay. So they've been in working on this for quite a while then. Yeah, and, and remember too, the United Nations, which means one in French, UN is one. Un. Hmm. And uh, it took over from the League of Nations, L-O-N, which is a hidden lion actually in other, other languages. And the League of Nations was set up in 1917, 1918, to, to again be uh, the embryo of a world so it simply transformed and used World War II to, to come to power with more power, more rights over the world. And it was like a, a phoenix bird transforming, uh, but it's the same organization. In fact, when it was founded, it had all the same departments of even population management, population control, etc., etc., uh, already established in the early 1900s. So did they also plan the um, wars from that point? They did know that they needed wars to make to bring them to 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 maximum power. H.G. Um, Wells wrote about the League of Nations, and he said at the time now politicians are bypassed by bureaucracies 
because national bureaucracies and departments of bureaucracies can now uh, travel across the, the water and meet with their counterparts in any country and bypass all political input. So that was the method. See, Britain runs the world through bureaucracies, not through politicians. That's the secret. And the bureaucracies always um, are backed by the secret services, like MI6, and vice versa. And so, would you say Britain runs the world uh, more than the United States and Israel, or would you say it's a team effort now? It's a team effort, but but Britain has always seemed to be the nucleus of all of this long-term strategy, going back to, as I say, to the days of John Dee and uh, in the, in the 1500s and Francis Bacon. So who's going to have the ownership of the land? I think that kind of goes back to the monarchy, doesn't it? Oh, it does. We've got to remember that even in ancient Egypt, no one technically owned anything because it said that the pharaoh owned everything, land, sky, everything that flew in the sky, crawled on the earth and walked and burrowed into the earth. Everything was owned by the pharaoh. And it was the same with the, these characters who came into Britain, these Normans, um, uh, everything was owned by the king. It was a crown land. You still see crown land in Canada. It's all across the place. And uh, in fact, even today, it's no different. They don't hang you if you're caught poaching a rabbit. However, uh, still on the books, they can deport you to Australia. Um, and also, if, if they catch, uh, uh, if they, if they actually open the trunks of cars going through certain crown lands, and and they can confiscate that vehicle and everything in it if they claim that you have a fish that you've poached illegally or whatever, you know. Uh, they have all the same same feudal rights that they've always had, and you have no comeback. There's no appeal. There's so no court. I wonder. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. So the national ID and that sort of thing is kind of their way of tallying up their ownership of. Yes, in ancient times, see, the Old Testament, to an extent, as far as I can see, and, and there's a lot of esoteric stuff in there, but it gives you the rules of the world system, the game, that slavery is okay. Uh, slavery by any method, getting, getting a person by any method, is okay. Uh, people can put themselves into slavery by owing you money, that's okay as well. And you not only own them, you own their offspring until it's paid off. So what is the law that they... always branded mm -hmm. your, your mm -hmm. ownership on mm -hmm. that which you owned. So what law do they go under? Uh, the, the Old Testament came out of, as I say, the very ancient world. That was, in fact, it's a compilation of other religions that already existed, which makes you wonder if it was all one religion too, again, under many guises. But um, it's couched often under the law of nature, um, in Judaism, they cannot tell you what God is. In Christianity, they'll tell you oh, it's a loving God that carries a lamb around and all the rest of it and pats children on the head. But in Judaism, uh, all they can tell you, and there's been a lot of, I mean, the rabbis have endless, they're allowed to dissect everything as opposed to Christianity. And they can tell you what God is not by what they see by their senses, by their perceptions, but they can't tell you what God is. However, Judaism is an active religion where the, the process is to work your way towards a form of perfection of what God wanted, where in Christianity it's a passive religion because it was all done a long time ago. It was done. So they're very, very different, although modern Judaism goes by the Talmud and not by so much by the Torah, I think 90% of of tuition of all rabbis is from the Talmud 
which did originate in Babylon, uh, supposedly during her captivity, and and uh, they lost their priests or their Levites then, and so to keep the religion going, they created this new type of sect, uh, um, the Pharisaical sect of rabbis, to try and keep it going while in captivity, and it really came out. The, the Talmud came out of captivity, and uh, uh, and, and eventually it was added to and added to for a few centuries thereafter by by well-known or, or famous rabbis. So there's a lot of commentaries in there too. But in some ways, there's a lot of practicality in it. Um, but you don't find what Christians would say is, is, is much to do with a, a, a God who really does much in your life. In Christianity, people are looking for a personal contact. In Judaism, you, you sort of work your way towards something which you don't understand yourself. Okay, but basing our laws from these religions, is that... What is the what is the ruling law now? I mean, it, it, with this one world UN, the the, the law is, is is obviously dictatorial. We see that ourselves. Okay. The law, especially now with homeland security and terrorism everywhere, terror will be used as an excuse, and it was created for this purpose to, as an excuse to as a hundred years war. Remember what Rumsfeld and Cheney said. Uh, out of this hundred years, they, they hope to change society so vastly uh, that they'll have no resemblance to the present society in a hundred years' time. That means all relations, all relationships, a completely different system. And through the writings of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, everybody will be a world, world citizen, and they will be born with a duty to serve the world state. That will be your function. Okay, so that's not kind of a compilation of like the maritime or, or. Well, maritime definitely runs the whole economic system, and all your all your major laws run around uh, the maritime law, which is economic, an economic system. Okay. Yeah, it's all to do with economics. H.G. Uh, Wells goes into that in quite a good detail because. Uh, the economics runs everything in this particular feudal system and everything must revolve around economics. It's like free trade though, it's very deceptive. You have to always look at the opposites of everything you're told um, because this is the ancient mystery religion. You always look at the opposites because generally it'll sound completely different to give you a different perception from its real function. Free trade is not free trade. Free trade is limited trade to authorized international corporations only. A world citizen, and people, uh, you'll think, well, no borders, wonderful. No, it won't be that at all. Uh, with the chipping which is coming into place and so on, you will not be allowed to travel unless they, they give you permission to travel. Most of it will be trapped within the, the present countries, although the borders technically will be down, but they won't be allowed to pass beyond borders because electronic surveillance will pick up their chip they have the chips in the passport and they're all tracked by uh, these little cell phone uh, uh, satellite dishes everywhere well, if this is an old that system will, uh, transpire Alan. Mm-hmm. pardon mm-hmm. what do you think that that when do you mm-hmm. think it will you, you've you said that uh, most people will not be able to travel outside their country yeah. I think those people who are concerned about these things m- would be interested if you were to guesstimate uh, when they want to put that into action 
uh, even the stuff they've published have talked about 2010 by 2010 the last part of the five part treaty um, for the amalgamation of the Americas is to be signed by the president and the two prime ministers Mexico and Canada they've signed one every year since 2005 the first one openly at Waco and um, uh, they told us on television, national television here, I have it on tape uh, that that uh, 2010 is the goal for a complete amalgamation. Now is that for North and South America or is that just for the Northern Hemisphere? It's for, at the moment it's for, it's for Mexico, not to scare us all you see, for Mexico and perhaps Chile as well. Chile has been they've been working on Chile for 25 years building it up to be the agribusiness center uh, for farming that's where your tax money has been going once we signed the NAFTA deal all the taxpayers of the US and Canada have paid Monsanto uh, Archer Daniels Midland that's Adam uh, a little covert Adam there and a few other ones uh, to build their, their big uh, agribusiness centers for growing in Chile so Chile is coming in and a few other ones after that in fairly rapid succession but they, they don't want to terrify us too much all at once. Not that they, I don't think it really, it really matters today. I think most folk are too far gone, to be honest with you, with their brainwashing. But, um, but uh, 2010, we all have to have our ID cards with us at all time, as they have in some European countries like Holland. You've got to carry your ID card with an active chip in it at all times. And you're monitored in every back alley, every street at all times, because the, the cell phone uh, tower relays, are, which are everywhere, uh, will pick you up where you are and eventually that will be a microchip under the skin, there's no doubt about it that's coming So back in maybe Babylon time, would they have been talking about a one world then or is this something that they knew was going to take place way, way far into the future? They knew, they knew even at that time by their trading, for instance the Phoenicians that were just the, the Greek word for the Canaanites, they were the world masters of trade for centuries and they kept exploring and, expl- and realized that there was a huge world out there that had not been conquered and they knew it would take an age to, to, to make it happen a complete age to, to bring it about and so steadily, steadily, steadily uh, again through mystery religions remember what a, a mason stands for uh, they take the word from stonemason and they use their, their terminology of architecture in, in their rites and so on but when they built the big cathedrals in Europe in the Middle Ages massive, massive cathedrals uh, it would take 7 to 10 generations of stonemasons to complete that project and so the man who started it knew he'd never see the end of it and that was part of their tradition they were working towards a great work they called it and Freemasonry today, uh, they call it the great work, and that's the, the, that is the taking over of the world and perfecting all that was left imperfect, which means that everything on the planet has to be perfected through scientific means into what they believe it should be, including us as humans. So what are we looking forward to then as in the next few years? For, for the most people... We've got to have a time of chaos, absolutely. It's ordo ab chaos, mm-hmm. as a motto. And that's 
that's a, a horror show with totalitarian rule. They're already doing it in England. They had a raid with 1,100 cops going down streets in in northern London just a couple of days ago. I talked about it. It was in the newspapers at the Mail. An arm, a battalion of police now going down to homes and, and businesses and so on. Just like the sci-fi movies they started churning out 30 years ago, getting us all ready for it psychologically. And we're looking at plagues being brought out because plagues, Brown in Britain, the Prime Minister is prattling on about plagues going to break out. They're buying portable crematoriums to take care of it, big tractor trailers of them, you know, lots of them. They're convinced it's going to be a must-be, so I, I would take that as, as, as true because pandemics is the greatest way to control through terrifying people into um, acceptance of a new system where your life will be ordered and you'll be ordered to do everything and anything and you will obey or else because there'll be no appeals court to, uh, and no one to complain to um, that's what we're looking forward to as they bring this hundred years war through now the British Department of Defense and I have on my website had published nine pages of a 90 page report from, from the Department of Defense which is also the head of NATO we have to remember and they project 30 years of turmoil, chaos, mob riots, increasing and increasing and increasing for the next 30 years. And they're going all out to prepare to meet these new challenges, as they call it. So your food supply has been taken over. They're already creating the, the shortage of food supply with the wheat crisis that they're, they're manufacturing. Since only five agribusinesses own the, 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 the farming industry of the world, it's quite easy to bring about. You only see food riots and all, every other kind of riot as the economy goes down until they train us gener generationally for a hundred years and out at the end of that hundred years will be a vastly reduced population. Um, I doubt if many of the worker types will even be conscious anymore. I think they'll be chipped and programmed for, to be efficient workers and computers will run them. Do you think there will be transhumanism? Oh, there's no doubt. So they've just had the international transhumanist association meetings there and every top professor across the western world was there they're all part of it and they think it's wonderful and what is transhumanism transhumanism is, is if the initial merging of cyborg technology brain chips and oh. so on but they're also having post-humanism and that that's a completely new type of human to be created scientifically genetically uh, that will take over from even that before the hundred years is out. So you're doing all this work. You have to have some kind of hope in this, or why would you be working so hard to get the word out? If, if we cannot stir the will of people to to at least challenge this and decide for the first time in their lives, but they'd rather be entertained literally to death, literally to death, as all this is happening. Or do they, is life precious enough? Is there enough in life to hold on to, to retain ourselves as the way we are? And if people cannot make that decision, the game is over for them. Uh, all I can do is live up to my own expectations and, and live um, with some kind of integrity for myself and never mind the way that the world goes but I must try and, and give people that chance to wake up 
and at least say, is, is this life and the way I am good enough, or do I want to be some kind of cyborg, or my child to be, or, or a future generation that I will never know? Do I still have enough bonding in me to care what happens to them? And I have to say that I do. Well, I think there's a number of us that do, and uh, not without its own risks that it, it's be- beginning to get apparent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I really appreciate that you know your time that you've given us to put this kind of information out. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan, for joining us again. It's been a pleasure to be on. It's been, been, been really, really a, a very interesting interview. We've covered a lot of things, and I'm sure we could we could keep going, but I guess our time is up. So thanks so much, and uh, hope to talk again sometime. And thanks for having me on. Okay, well, thank you. Take care. And, okay, good night.